This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hey up, it's the No Name Never podcast, with your host, Jamie Smith. Hello and welcome to a very special Sunday night podcast, um, Sunday night for the international break this week, because we've got a very, very special guest, Clark Carlisle is with us. Good evening, Clark. Good evening. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Very well indeed, Jamie. Excellent. Thanks a lot for coming on. We really appreciate that. Um, and we'll get straight into it. You've got a new book out. So what, what was the process behind the book? How did it come about? Um, well, the first and foremost, you know, the publishers came to me and asked me if I was interested in writing a book. And I'd never thought about it. But the more I did think about it, the more I wanted to to try it and see if I could do it. Um, and in, in doing that, I wanted to try and do something different, something that wasn't just like your standard footballer autobiography where it says, oh, then we played this game and I scored this goal and then I met this girl. Yeah, sure. I didn't want it to be like that. So um came up with this idea of, of almost doing like a life in the year of, so diarising the course of a year to show people that, that it's not, Everything that that, uh, that is portrayed in the media, it's often, you know, it's not what people perceive to be this this footballer's life. And um, it's obviously been a big success already because you've been nominated for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award, haven't you? That must be a, yeah. a really big honour for your first book. I, I am so proud and honoured. You, you know, you, you've got the, hit the nail on the head there. Um, when I wrote the book, I was just... I don't know. I was really concerned that, that uh, no one would want to read it and no one would be interested. But when I actually finished the book and the publisher sent it back to me in uh, in paper form, I was just so proud that I'd actually done it. It was far more difficult than uh, than I'd ever, ever considered. And I have a newfound respect for authors. But now, having gone through all that and, and seeing it long-listed for William Hill, you know, that does make me so proud. Um, and you've been doing plenty of book signings, haven't you? So you must have got out and about and spoke to plenty of people who were interested in the book. That must be really interesting as a as a first time author to see that sort of the process that goes into the 
the the marketing of the book, if you like. Definitely, yeah. It's again, it's a different side to a different world. I'm, I'm not used to anything like this. And um, we're going. We've been on a publicity tour, uh, going to bookshops and theatres and stuff, and having talks and Q and As. I've got one coming up at uh, Turf Moor actually, and I think it's. Oh, excellent! I was about to ask you if you had one at the time. Yeah, turf. I have got one coming up at Turf Moor in November, um, so looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, it is. It's very, very different. Especially when I went to the city, I did one that was in the financial district, uh, uh, central London. And I just couldn't, for the life of me, think who would want to come uh, to <laughs> to speak to me and buy my book in the centre of London, in, in that kind of area. But there was there was a queue at the bookshop. I was <laughs> I was a bit flabbergasted, but it, it's been excellent. You're right. It's been a different side to to life and a different side to uh, publicity and and advertising yourself. But it's been very enjoyable. So do you think in the future you'd maybe write another? Do you think that would be something you'd be interested in doing? <laughs> no. I know there, this one's obviously still one ongoing there, in a way. There were two <laughs> books in one, my first and my last. That's <laughs> really? No, I, so, I think uh, Mrs. C asked if I, she thinks I should write a novel. And I, I'm like, well, you know, I, I struggled to write this about my about reality and about my own life, you know. I struggled to write about things when I was there. So how, <laughs> how on earth am I going to be able to write uh, some should, fiction um, story? But I'm just one of... Alistair Campbell. He obviously did some diaries and he's moved on to novels now, hasn't he, Alistair Campbell? He has, yeah. I've got a couple of his books here, actually. Um, this is his last one, All in the Mind. Have you read this one? I haven't, no, but I've heard it's no. extremely good. A little bit of a product placement for Alistair there. Excellent. All in the mind. <laughs> I it hope he's listening. I hope he's <laughs> listening. A free plug for you there. Available all good bookshops. So I suppose since you retired this <laughs> summer. Bad ones too. It's, it's everywhere. <laughs> bad ones as well. You can't miss it. So no, I suppose I, the I, book I'm... must be taking up a lot of your time since retiring from football this summer. It has, yeah. I'm, I'm, Mrs. C says I'm the most unretired, retired person in the world. <laughs> but but what, what happens when you leave football is I, it's not retirement in the natural sense. You know, every you, when you think of retirement, you think of 65, 67 or whatever, you know, and then of course, uh, yeah. sit, sitting on the veranda uh, overlooking the Serengeti. It, it's not like that. I'm, I'm just moving into a different career. So it's a, it's a transition period, and I'm getting used to the new uh, schedule and like the new structure to my life. Um, but it, yeah, it, it takes some getting used to as well. So, how are you finding retirement so far? Do you miss football at all, or is it still all a bit new? Do you know, I know that I should say that I miss it terribly every day, but the the truth is, Jamie, that I don't. You know, I think. Um, I, I I reached the pinnacle of my professional career, um, and in tasting that about four years ago, I, I don't think that, with all due respect to Northampton or York, I was ever going to reach those highs again. You know, even getting to Wembley with Northampton, it was a fantastic way to to play your last game of football. But it it was still a, a a lesser experience than getting to Wembley with Burnley, you know, and all the 
rewards and joys that, that came with that. So I, I don't miss it. I'm, I'm enjoying the freedom. I'm enjoying the liberation, especially because I now have to relinquish the chairmanship of the PFA. You know, it's just a huge weight of responsibility that's lifted from my shoulders. And now I can relax with my family. And I, I'm investing myself in a new career, which has got me as excited as I was as a 16-year-old going to uh, Blackpool. Um, you've already started doing quite a lot in the media, don't you? Is that where you see your future? You signed on with ITV as a pundit, is that right? It is, yes. I'm an ITV co-commentator. <laughs> grand title, grand title. And you'll be <laughs> going to the World Cup for you Come next summer? Come for the summer. business card. <laughs> <laughs> really? And the World Cup will be on your agenda for next summer, I suppose. Will you be going over there with ITV? We will indeed, yes. Yeah, the uh, commentary teams will be on location, so I've got that look to look forward to. And this this is why I think I, I am enjoying this next step so much, because I'd reached the pinnacle of what I could do playing-wise, and now I'm venturing into another industry where, yet again, I'm a rookie, so I'm going to have to work really hard to try and you know uh, make progress in, in the game. But also... It's taken me to parts of football that I could never have dreamed of going as a player because I wasn't good enough. So I've been working on the Europa League, I've been working on the Champions League, going to uh, Tromso and the Mestaya and out to Russia, and I'm going to be going to the World Cup. You know, this is a million miles from the playing career that, that I've had, and, and it's awesome. It sounds like you've not really taken a breath since you finished playing in the summer, so um, you're obviously <laughs> keeping extremely busy. <coughs> I haven't. Um, I've been keeping extremely busy, but not physically active. I'm taking a rest. The only <laughs> exercise I've done is um, walking to the farm shop to get burgers for the barbecue. So <laughs> I'm not going to do anything until the new year. And then in the new year, that's when I'm going to assess where I'm at physically and, and then start to you know do a little bit of maintenance work, but nothing more than that. Quite right, too. A well-deserved rest. Um, I just want to move on to your time at Burnley, which you've already mentioned has been a, a high point with the, the promotion at Wembley. Do, do you think um, the experience at Burnley was maybe the, the best time of your playing career? Would that be fair to say? Yeah, without doubt. There, there's um, the, that whole, the whole time at Burnley, the group of lads that we had, the success that we shared, the unity, not just do with the, the players, especially in the first two or three years, um, but also with our families, you know, we we did so much socially together outside of football, which is really quite rare in the modern game. You know, you might get groups of lads who might go out together from a, a club, but very rare that you get the whole families doing things together and the lads and, the, uh, and their partners going for meals and stuff. I mean, even just this last Christmas, we had a a Burnley uh, Christmas meal get together, and there was only Duffo who still plays there. You know, we've really? all, we've all gone our separate ways, but you know, we still all can come and meet together and uh, and have made strong friendships. But without doubt, professionally, it, it was the the peak of of my career. Do you think it was the the fact that what Burnley achieved was so special? Was that was is that why everyone came together so much, having that shared experience? Um, I, I think that it's kind of a chicken and an egg situation because I think one contributed to the other, which contributed back to it itself. You know, sure. Owen came in and created this atmosphere, very family-orientated, very 
social, but also very, uh, it's en- it was enjoyment based. It was just all about enjoyment, being together, um, uh, and and just focusing on on the good things. Uh, and that enjoyment that we had at, at work, that was then the basis for success. You know, because we went out onto the pitch with just utter freedom. It was a freedom to express yourselves and, and go and play football. And if we ever did get a bad bad result, we weren't ever lambasted for it. You know, he was just trying to pick us up with smiles and uh, and more fun during the week. And that meant getting our families involved, you know, and spending a lot of time together. So sure. it, it's kind of it kind of snowballed and. That the happier we were, the more successful we were, the more the the team and the families got together. So the happier we were, so the more success, you know. And, and it, especially in that the year that we went up and we we got to the cup semi final, that capital punishment was an excellent run, and um, it you know we really started to believe that we could achieve something when we came away from Stamford Bridge and and then Loftus Road in in a short period of time with positive results. Um, one of the things fans often cite about that season was the fact that the, the club came so close to getting to when we in the, in the league cup and in the Spurs game, it was sort of snatched away from us in extra time. Did that give the group of players the, the, the drive and the desire to want to get into the playoffs and get to when we through a different route? Well, do you know, I've been asked that a couple of times and I'm, I can't speak for everyone because that wasn't what happened for me. I was utterly devastated when we lost to Spurs, especially because, you know, all things being equal, we should have gone through after 90 minutes. They Absolutely. It's, have, it's they a strange have, rule, isn't it? The, the League Cup's got a strange rule for yeah, the away goal. They, they shouldn't have different. an extra half hour to score an away goal, you know? So I, I was really bitter and twisted after that, and I still am, because that, that denied us of a... Um, Robbed you of the you cup know, final, yeah. The only ever major cup final I've, 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 I've ever been at. Um, but no, because because we, we'd overachieved so much in that competition, you know, I think that it was the performances against all these Premier League sides, especially as we were getting later in the rounds, um, that kind of fed our confidence so I, I'm not going to say that it inspired us to to go on and and get to Wembley via another route. No, I think we we actually felt that we were hard done by, you know. So something that's, had actually been taken away from us. That's really interesting because I, I thought it would be the other way around. But I suppose when you're in there, you must have felt like it it was within your grasp. Um, Adam, I think you've got a comment that you're just going to read out for us now. Yeah, uh, one from Ganks on the live chat says that Clark Carlisle was a was part of a team that gave me my best footballing day of my life, and I can't thank him enough for that. So there you go, Clark. I'm, sh- I'm sure all Burnley fans would echo those sentiments. Clark, oh, that's, that special. is nice to hear, and and it's the same for me that you know. Um, the the fact that we beat United at the turf, you, you know, the the Premier League champions one 0 People say that must have been the greatest day, and I'm like no, because without that day at Wembley, days like that would never have been possible. And to get to have virtually the whole of Burnley down on that day, you know, for a showpiece finale, it was it was just awesome. Um, while we're talking about Wembley, actually, Adam, I think you've got a clip of the interview you gave on the pitch after the full-time whistle. Can we play that now? Yep. 
Let's uh, get a word with Clark Cartmiller. A magnificent achievement for Burnley Football Club. How proud are you to play such a big part in it? I'm, I'm privileged and I'm honoured to be a member of this magnificent team. What a season, you know, that words can't describe how, how brilliant, how awesome, awesome an achievement this is. I just thank God so much that I'm blessed to be a part of this team and, and part of this magnificent day. You missed out with Watford, you were injured for the 2006 yeah. final. Does this make up for it? It, it? More than makes up for it, you know. It, it's just unbelievable. Gemma, Marley, Fran, I love you. This is all for you. It's awesome. Awesome. Clark, you've had your problems in the past on a personal level. Yeah. Does something like this make you feel proud in oh, yourself? Yeah, I, you know, my many thanks to BK Sporting Chance and the PFA for sticking behind me because without all of you guys, I wouldn't be stood here blessed and privileged to be in this position thank everyone and this team has just been magnificent look at these fans what an awesome day what an awesome day well congratulations to both of you you're also the parade man of the match many congratulations to the honest boy well done guys that, wow. I still get goosebumps listening to that clip. I mean, I was at the match, so I didn't see the clip and all the, the post-game stuff for a long time afterwards, but hearing you speak so emotionally about the day and representing the club at that sort of level, it, it's emotional for me to listen back. It must be the same for you even now, Clark. It is. It's, you know, I can't remember half of the things that I said, and uh, <laughs> it, it just all comes flooding back, when, obviously, when you, when you hear that. But the, that moment... Uh, the final whistle in the the like twenty twenty minutes half hour on the pitch afterwards, it, the words cannot express how you feel. You know this is the forty ninth game of the season. It, it is ninety minutes that defines whether you, you achieve your dreams, your lifelong ambition, or your season ends in abject failure. You know it is such an emotionally charged match, and then when the final whistle goes and you've done it. That, I was just overwhelmed. Pure relief at first, you know. I think the first thing yeah. I did was cry. Is uh, wow! It was just amazing. It really was amazing. Yeah, there were a lot of tears in the in the stands as well. Is is there anything about the day at Wembley with Burnley that stands out when you look back at it? Was there anything that that did what? Sorry. Is there anything in particular that stands out? Anything about the game or anything that happened before or afterwards? When yes. you think back to that game, what stands out? <laughs> Yes, the most the, the standout moment in that game was when we walked out of the tunnel and those big pyrotechnics went off. Right? Yeah. So we walked out, we hit this wall of noise, and then we just walked through a, a furnace. And if I wasn't hot and nervous enough already, we just melted <laughs> at these flames. Honestly, it was utterly ridiculous. I lost about a stone in sweat before the game kicked <laughs> off. Um, I, it was intense heat. When, when we were already emotionally charged. Um, and actually, it doesn't surprise me, but I, they didn't have them up again the next year. I think someone <laughs> must have complained, but I'll never forget how hot they were because I thought, do you know what? I don't need that right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really funny, but yeah, I suppose <laughs> it must have, must have been a slight distraction at the time, yeah. It was. Um, you've already you've already spoken a little bit about Owen Coyle as the manager and the, the sort of family atmosphere he built at the club. Um, are you a bit surprised that he's maybe struggled a little bit since? And what do you remember about him as a manager at Burnley? Uh, it was outstanding, Owen. Um, you know, I've said this in, in any 
any interview or comment that I've ever made about him. Um, he was one of the best man managers that I've ever worked for. Um, he was just all about enjoyment, encouragement, positivity. Um, uh, and he, he, he enabled you to believe that you could, you know, even against all odds. You, you always went out there thinking that you could win a game. And even when you went a goal down, He'd instilled in you that it it doesn't matter. Just carry on doing what you're doing, and you'll be successful. Yeah. And and that was fantastic. The flip side to that was that the training regime was one of the most unprofessional I've ever worked in. Oh um, really? Oh yeah, yeah. All, all we did was skills games and crossing and shooting. Where if you didn't put it on a plate for Owen so that he could score, then you got you know you got telling <laughs> off. And we used to play these games for cans of pop uh, and do crossing and shooting for cakes. And whoever lost had to bring a tray of cakes in and a crate of pop the day before the next game. So we got promoted <laughs> on Monday and Friday, eating Krispy Kremes and drinking Iron Brew. That's, that's <laughs> what we got promoted on. And it was you the best season of sugar the <laughs> We loved yeah, it so much. The sugar ups. Yes, actually, other clubs that I've been to afterwards, I've tried to bring in Cake Friday, and they're just not having <laughs> <laughs> like, what the hell are you doing? Well, it's Cake Friday, come on. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the things I was going to ask you about later, actually, that the, over your career, it must have, the sports science side must have come on a lot, and the way fitness is managed, what were the main things that you noticed over the course of your career about how players looked after in that sort of way? Uh, the 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 biggest difference was was just in sheer knowledge, you know. Um, when I started out at Blackpool in '96, there was there was so much guesswork, you know. There were people saying, "Well, I, I, I an almost tradition. I've done this for 20 years, and this is what we're going to do." Blah blah blah. But now the knowledge in sports science is, you know, it, it's it really is. It, it's special, you know. It's it's so specific about. Well, I worked with a, a coach uh, a few years back who could tell us on, on in pre-season in July exactly what training session we were going to be doing the following April. You know, exactly what it would be, the intensity of it, the distances that we cover. And that's because now the, the knowledge is there for to plan for what could be uh, your your maximum exertion levels, you know, and what you're going to need. And how you need to be fueled along that way, um, and tied in with that, the money has escalated so much in the industry that that professionalism isn't just restricted to the top division now. Every every league it is just you know pretty much they're, they're the same. They'll be doing the same things at Aldershot as they'll be doing at Man United, but just on a lesser scale according to you know budget. Yeah. Or the principles will be identical, and that's what's different. You know, the entirety of the game is is professional to the core. I suppose everyone's all about trying to get an edge, aren't they? Um, Adam, I think you've got another comment for us. Yeah, Andy, who who comes on the the podcast almost every week, um, says uh, that Michael Duff said similar about Coyle at, uh, at the tweet up we had, and Coyle made him dance bef- before every e- eh, every game, hence <laughs> doing it at Wembley. <laughs> Did that happen? It did. Duffo's dance, yeah. He did it at Wembley. <laughs> uh, he did it at Wembley on the steps. You you can get it on YouTube. 
Yeah, but, we've all um, seen the footage of Duffo's dance. Yeah, the video of it hasn't got the, the correct music. I can't remember what the correct music's called. Yeah, Duffo had to dance before every game until there was one game where we got absolutely battered. It might have been a Hulk. Oh, I'm not sure. No, it can't have been Hulk, can it? There were no... There was one game we got absolutely battered and then he wasn't allowed to dance after that. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy now says C in capital letters, like he was trying to prove a point. He <laughs> <laughs> was very superstitious, Coyley, you know, very. What do you make of superstition? I was just about to say, Sean Dash, our current manager, was on um, a Sky Sports show the other day saying he absolutely doesn't believe in superstitions because it's just not logical. Did you, as a player, have any superstitions? Uh, I used to back in the day, and, and Sean's right, you know, it's highly illogical, because um, you, what I used to do, when I saw Paul Ince do it when I was a kid, when I was at Blackpool, I always put my shirt on in the tunnel last after everyone else, just because Paul Ince did it. <laughs> and then as I got older, I used to have to shave my head before every game. And then it was only when I realised that whether my head was shaved or not, I would still have a stinker. That's when I realised it, <laughs> it had absolutely nothing to do with it. But what I do believe in is routine. You know, I think you can always get into a, a general routine where, where you're preparing your body and your mind for a game. But you can't be superstitious about it because when you're superstitious and you fail to do one thing, then that will psychologically undo you. It will do far more damage than having done 10 things correctly. You know, whereas if you've just got a general um, preparation routine and and it's, you're quite, you know, you can be quite liberal with it. So it, it, it doesn't matter if you put your right shin pad on first or your left. <laughs> yeah. But you do generally know that you, you have a coffee on the way into the ground or you know, you're going to sit and listen to some music and relax your mind or, or you're going to go and do some stretches or get a rub off the physio. Something that's, that can be, you know that you're going to be able to do virtually every game so that your body gets, uh, gets used to that routine and knows that there's a match coming. Uh, just to come back to Owen Coyle, we've already spoke a little bit about him, but um, what sort of impact did it have on on the club in general when he when he did walk to go out to Bolton and <coughs> did the players did the play bless you did the players understand the reasons behind it? How did it feel inside the dressing room at that time? Of course, we understood. You know, it's um, it's plain and simple. The gaffer was doing very well, and um, and other clubs would want him if. Uh, any players that were sold at the beginning of the season or halfway through the season, it would be identical for them. If they were going to make a move that was they thought was going to further their career or it gave them you know, increased income or, or increased um, profile, then it's very easy to understand. And what, it wasn't the fact that, the, that Coyley left that impacted us more. With all due respect, it was the fact that Brian was appointed afterwards. Because we we envisaged as a squad that with us being, you know, I think we're about 13th in the table, 12th or 13th, that, you yeah. know, we might get a chance to work with a an experienced Premier League manager, high profile, you know, someone to give the squad a, a real lift for the second half of the season. And and the appointment of Brian was, was quite underwhelming, you know, especially with his, his recent record at, 
Sheffield Wednesday it was before before it came to us. So yeah, absolutely, it, it was it was the how underwhelming that appointment was and the lack of impact that that Brian had on the squad. And um, so. Did the dressing room just struggle to believe that, that Brian Walls had the ability to, to keep Burnley up? Do you think that was it? Or was it just the, the fact that he didn't have the personality to come in after Coyle, who was such a big personality in that way? It, it was it was chalk and cheese personality-wise. Um, you know, Coyle is very charismatic, very energetic, always positive. Uh, and Brian uh, was quite dour. You know, he, he was quite quiet and quite dour. You know, he, he did have a laugh and a joke when we were in around the boys, but he's, you know, his general demeanour wasn't one who, who, that was going to really rally the troops and, and gear us up. But, you know, it's it's very easy for players to absolve themselves of responsibility and just say, oh, this manager this and that manager that. You know, the, the fact of the matter was that we barely won a game in, in the second half of the season. You know, and no sure. matter who's in charge, we've still got to go out there and win the games. You know, I can, uh, I remember the game against Portsmouth at home. It was one of the worst games I had in my career. It was sure. utterly disgusting. Um, and even the first goal, I still don't think I could have stopped that first goal. But the fact that I gave away a penalty and, and then cost us another goal and things like that, that would have been a, you know, a four point swing. Just, just small moments in games that could have contributed that swing to us staying up. Um, there were several games where it could have happened. So we can't just blame Coyley or Brian, you know, because there were pivotal moments in matches that where we could have done much, much better. One of the things you say in the in the book as well about the, the Brian Walls period was that the players held more power than the manager at that time. Were there divisions in the changing room or... Did he lose the dressing room? That's something people say. What What are your feelings on that? What does lose the dressing room mean? I'm not really sure. It's one of these phrases that gets bandied around by fans a lot. But I, no, I think you're right. It's it's one of those that when you're in the dressing room, I suppose you you that's not something you ever think about. Did no, he have the support of the players? Um, the the that Burnley squad was desperate to stay in the Premier League. It meant so much to all of us, um, you know, for uh, personally, for pride and, and financial reasons and uh, the potential contracts that were the carrots at the end of the stick, you know, for, for, for staying in the, in the Premier League. It meant so much to all of us individually that I don't think any manager could have lost us. Um, the, the reason why I say that the dressing room had more power than Brian was because the, a lot of the decisions that were made didn't seem to be his own, you know. So we'd have a meeting after a game, and and it would come out like, well, you know, we're blood. <laughs> I remember him saying he came in. He said, "I'm a four-four-two man. I know you guys have been playing like one up top and blah blah blah, but I'm a straight four-four-two man." But we're going to play with one up top because that's. <laughs> 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 If you're a four four two man, then play us four four two. You know, grow yeah. some town halls. Like it, it seems like he was undermining himself there. He did in, in his own in one sentence. It <laughs> just demeaned himself and took all power away from him. But um, yeah, it was all oh, the the story about when we were going down to Cardiff and the game was called off. 
And so we we <laughs> we took the bus to Nottingham so that we could have our Christmas do. Um, and the gaff said he didn't want to come, so we dropped him off at services so he could get the taxi home. So, <laughs> you that know, it's just things like that stories. that I can't. It, not one single other manager in my in my career would have let us do that. But um, um, yeah, he got bullied a bit. <laughs> <laughs> one of the comments we've just had as well from Robbie, who's an, another contributor to the site, says um, the comments that Joey Johnson made about Brian Laws. I think he was um, away from the club at the time. Were the other players aware of that? Did that have any impact? Do you remember that? I can't remember. What did Joe say? I have to check that, but I think he said something about... um, I think it was Joey said something about Brian Laws losing the dressing room. We'll try and get Robbie to check that and maybe come back to it. Um, Brian obviously didn't last very long the following season and and Eddie Howe was the man who came in. What did you make of Eddie Howe as manager? Um, Eddie was... Um, Eddie was a strange one for me, really. Um, he came in and you know he he, he set his stall out about how I want to play and what what he wanted to do. But um, I, and I tried to do all that he wanted me to do. And, and he was he said to me that we would sort of arrange a new contract at the end of the season. Um, and then at the end of the season, he just bin me off and said he didn't want me back in the place at all, which. It was one of the hardest things I've had to deal with in my entire career. I, I loved it at Burnley, uh, and I didn't want to go for love and the money, which is why I actually went on loan instead of um, instead of transferring because I harboured the hope that he might change his mind or, or I might be able to get back. But Eddie as a manager was incredibly quiet. He was so quiet that there was a period of time where we weren't sure if he was just rude or if he was a very quiet guy. Yeah, um, really? Yeah, yeah, you know, there was, there was sometimes at breakfast or at lunch where uh, some of the guys would have to say, like, afternoon gaffer, afternoon gaffer, three or four times before he even acknowledged them. And we just weren't sure whether he was just an incredibly shy man. But, um, but now, I, I don't know if this is 100% certain or not, but he, he, he shipped out a lot of the older pros, you know, myself, Tomo, um, Grez, uh, Chris Uelmo, yeah. Um It was almost as though he, he didn't want he didn't want those older characters around. That was how it, it seemed, um, and his his sessions were very schoolmasterly. You know, it was right. almost like a, he, he was a, a teacher, and it was right. Listen to everything I say. Stop smiling because you're not concentrating and stuff like that. So it was a very strange dynamic, but I didn't get to uh, get to taste it for as long as I as I would have liked. Um, I've got those comments from Joey Johnson up actually. Um, I think it was in the wake of the infamous, really, the six-one defeat at, at Turf Moor to Manchester City, where. It was uh, you probably remember the torrential rain as much as anything. I it do, was yeah. Conditions. <laughs> we wanted um, it off, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I honestly think if if City hadn't been so far ahead, the referee would have called it off. But it maybe would have been a little unfair to them at that stage. Anyway, what Joey apparently said um, was it, the manager had to downplay talk of rows with yourself and Robbie Blake. And Joey said, this shows that the guys do not believe in what he's doing. This just stops. This does not seem to work out. Um, is there anything you can add about those, those rows with Brian or was that just something that happened in dressing rooms? 
Do you know what? I, I is it just I paper talk? I can't really add to that because it was just a personal opinion, really. You know, it's Joe's it's Joe's opinion, and that often happens when a player is is uh, is not used by the manager. You know, Joey Joey was never really given an opportunity to to play under Brian and um, to show what he was capable of, but. I think I vaguely remember them trying to find him for those comments. I think he left on loan either shortly afterwards or he the comments were just after he'd gone on loan. I think he was already on his way or had just left. I think that was right. how that one worked out. And just to come back to that City match in particular, what was that like to play in? The fact that um, it, it was... So I don't, I don't know. I was on the bench, Jamie. I was on the bench. <laughs> yeah. I suppose if you'd have been playing, it would have been totally different, wouldn't it? Yeah, it'd have been twelve. Well, I, was, <laughs> I was on the bench, and you know, it's, it's hard. It might be hard for fans to swallow this, but you're gonna. I was on the bench, and when I think we're we were two down in six minutes. I think it was two in six and four in fifteen twenty minutes. Yeah, it was over in the first quarter of the game, and me and a few of the boys on the bench were laughing our heads off. We really? were because we'd had a row in the week about selection and um, you know who can contribute uh, stability and who's reliable and stuff like that. And um, uh, and, and Brian, like, he kind of gunned us down. It, it showed a bit of you know authority and leadership. And then we went in the game and and we were two down in six minutes. And I was like, ha ha, yes, excellent. You know, <laughs> so my, proved him wrong. Yeah. yeah. And that's what you want, especially when you're a defender. When you're defending, you're not in the in the team. You you want your your team to win six five, so that you've still got the points, but your defense has had a nightmare, and then you'll get a chance to get back in the team. So when yeah. we were two down in in six minutes, I had a smile on my face because I thought I might get on the pitch, and if I don't, then there might be a chance for me to start the next game. But hopefully, we can still win the game. Yeah, but then when, once it gets to like four in twenty minutes, and then five, you're just like, no, this this is not good, you know. Because I think, go on. I think we drew the second half of that game, which was a a minor victory in the end. Oh, yeah. I remember cheering like mad when that I cheering yeah. our goal. Like we, we won the second won the half. FA Cup or something. <laughs> that might be because what City were five nil up and and weren't bothered yeah, yeah, to so, yeah. see the game out. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think if City had kept attacking that game, it, it could have been any score. And um, just to come back to Eddie Howe, the, the way it ended with you saying that you'd been p- promised the contract would be sorted out, and then at the end of the season it was sort of taken away. Do you still feel a little bit sour about the way your time at Burnley came to an end? Um, I, I don't feel sour, no, because I know that that's what the industry is like. Um, but I do know that it kind of changed my life. Um, Mrs. C is not as forgiving as I am or as understanding as I am. Really? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's just the precarious nature of the industry. Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate that, A, I still managed to drag another couple of years out of the game by, by going out on loan and, and playing elsewhere, which gave me another taste of Wembley, which was utterly phenomenal. Uh, and also, I'm fortunate that I've got a, a new career to, to focus on now. But yeah, I, I would I would have liked to have stayed at Burnley. Um, just to move on to um, um, something else in the 
the the book was that you were quite open about the fact that you smoked. Um, Jack Welsh has been in the news in the last couple of weeks because he was pictured smoking. What do you make of that story? Is that something professional athletes should do or do you not think it has that much of an impact? Uh, it does have an impact and any any athlete who says it doesn't is lying. You know, there there is a smaller short-term impact if you are a, a, um, you know, a frequent smoker. If you're a social smoker, then, you know, the, the impact is more long-term, but you'll still suffer a shortness of breath in high-intensity sessions. Um, and like we were saying earlier, every player and every club should now be looking to get that edge, you know, get that 1%. And a player, especially like Jack Wilshire, at, at the top of the game, both for Arsenal and for England, is going to need every 0.01% that he can get, you know, to to sustain his career and sustain those levels of performance um, for for Arsenal and for England. So I, you know, it's simple. Physically, it'll be far better for a player to not smoke. But then you, you draw on on everyone's moral compass. It would be far better for every player to to not eat chocolate or never eat crisps. You know, we're talking about the the small percentages that will make a difference. But the thing about smoking is that um, you know it might encourage other aspirational kids, aspirational footballers to smoke, you would you would sincerely doubt it because I think everyone nowadays knows how bad it is for your health. But, uh, you know, it's just the, the impression that it gives and um, it, it won't do his profile any good. No, I think his reputation maybe took a little bit of a, a hit with that story. Um, one of the things you did in the last couple of years of your career was working at the PFA. What what did you make of that? What was that experience like? It, it was very good. It was um, it, it was an honour to be chairman for three years, and it was very interesting finding out what goes on on the other side of the football fence and how it's all delicately balanced politically between the FA, the Premier League, football league, the union, UEFA, FIFA. You know, there's very much a, a political balancing act going on. Um, but what I will say is that it was it was so so difficult. It, it was it was all consuming, um, and it was incredibly difficult. You know, the past three years, football just seems to have been in ethical meltdown, and it was it was one incident after another. And when that happens, you know, we we just camera crews just outside the house, and you know, swamped daily. We've calls on this, that, and the other, and it was very, very tough to deal with that and juggle that with with everything else that that was going on in my life. But overall, it was incredibly beneficial. You know, it was it was a privilege to represent um, all of my my fellow members, and it did my profile the world of good. You know, I, I I'm not going to lie about that either. One of the the things that was quite prominent, I suppose, during your time at the PFA was the, the kick it out racism campaign and the, yeah. there was a furore over the <coughs> over the T-shirts. Um, looking back at that now, a little bit of time's passed and there was the, the row with, I think, Jason Roberts on the outspoken players. Do you think maybe the PFA could have handled their side of that a bit differently? Or what do you make of that campaign in general and how do you think football needs to tackle the racism problem? 
Um, could that whole episode have been handled differently? Um, well, do you know, I, I don't actually think it could have been handled too differently because it wasn't the union who boycotted the kick it out t-shirts. You know, it was it was a, a handful of players who made that very visible and, and global gesture. So uh, subsequently, after that that gesture is made, uh, you know, I think the the union coped with it very well because they brought the players in and discussed around the table what it was that they they were happy with and unhappy with, and and it actually you know it instigated real change, not just in the equality department at the union, but also in the way that that kick it out is structured. So even though at the time when it happened, I didn't have a clue why the players were doing it and I didn't agree with them, subsequently, I did. And I respect that, that, that these guys used the platform that was available to them. If it came around again, I still wouldn't join them in the boycott, uh, in boycotting the T-shirts, but I understand why they did. Um, obviously, you did the, the BBC documentary on racism in football. Did that affect how you viewed the game I, I remember seeing it and you were um, quite surprised really at the incidents of racism because that was something you'd not really seen yourself do you still think this football needs to do more well I still know that football's got a lot of work to do it's one of those things Jeremy where they, they, it's never going to be a definitive end because yeah. ra- racism is a social issue and you know people always look at, at an incident, let's say, of discrimination in football, and say, "Oh, football's terrible." But this player is a product of his of his his home life, his community, his schooling. You know, he he's been created before he comes into football at sixteen or eighteen years of age, and sure. then you know, it's only then that we apply this differing moral compass. So while there is there is still discrimination and racism in the general population. It will filter into football, but we would sincerely hope that we can, you know, place these expectations and requirements of players in the game that overt um, incidents of racism and discrimination are no longer seen. But there are many different facets to this issue. It's huge, you know. There's talk of opportunity um, to get not only into coaching and management, but backroom staff and on board boardroom level at football club at football clubs or at the the FA or the Premier League or the Football League. And there's also the South Asian, South Asian player uh, problem, is how I would put it, because how can no players be coming through the system, you know, when we have such a, a strong percentage of uh, a South Asian um, sure. men up and down the country? And, and it goes on and on, mate. There, there are... What's happened? What happens is the issue evolves, and we need to make sure that what we're fighting racism and discrimination with evolves with the issue, so that we're not left just doing something that seems like a token gesture, which is what the boys felt about the t-shirts. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these things where there's there's no easy answer, is there? And I suppose this is the same for my next question, which is around the other BBC show that you did about. Um, suicide and depression in the game what was that like to make how did you find the process and do you think that football again needs to be doing more to help people with these sorts of issues well yeah it was incredibly difficult to make and um, very it difficult. was difficult to watch it was really difficult to watch so i can't imagine what it was like to make 
Yeah, it, um, it's an issue that I hadn't really broached, you know, for, for 10 years. I just locked it in Pandora's box. So um, I actually wrote about it first for the book, and it took me two months to broach the topic. Uh, right. But once I'd kind of broken the wall down, um, going back to the actual site of my suicide attempt, um, that, that yeah. was intense, honestly. It was a horrible... Um, and they didn't actually show... <laughs> um, the extent of how much I capitulated at that moment, honestly, I, I really broke down. But but it was very liberating because it enabled me to focus on what I do have and what I've achieved in that last ten years and the relationships and my children and stuff like that. So yeah, it, it did work positively in the end. But when you bring that into football, again, it's very much like racism. You know, it's a societal issue, mental health, and. Yeah. We're still very reticent to discuss mental health, you know, in our homes. Never mind, you know, in the yeah, general of course, absolutely. And um, when the stats tell us that one in four globally suffer from a mental health issue, um, you know, it's it's just like the the stats for homosexuality. Surely there's going to be some in football, you know. The, well, I know from that program that there's uh, there are many, many bordering on hundreds of guys who, who are suffering with issues of, of one sort or another and either don't know where to turn, didn't know what it was, um, or didn't want to get into the system because they felt that it it might be uh, used against them or, or show some kind of mental instability or weakness or, or whatever. Um, so, yes, we need to do a lot more in this area because the mechanisms are wholly inadequate. Is is that something you've got ideas on yourself? Um, one of the questions I was going to ask as well was, um, I don't know if you saw, there was a column by Ian Holloway in one of the newspapers recently suggesting that there should be a job found for you at either the FA or the Premier League or one of these organisations in football and maybe you could work on um, developing the structures for for players and the support networks in mental health. Is that something you feel you can contribute to or would that be... Is that not something you feel like you can get involved in? Uh, it's something that I, I could definitely get involved in. You know, um, one of the greatest attributes for anyone who's going to try and contribute to an issue or, or how to um, approach an issue is someone who's experienced it firsthand. You know, empathy is is such a more powerful um, ingredient than sympathy in any of these situations. So it's definitely something that I'd love to contribute to, but you, you don't. I can't just stand myself up and and, and shout for a job. And, and you know, as 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 kind as as those words are by Ollie, and uh, I've got so much love and respect for him. You know, that's not going to manufacture a job either. There needs to be an appetite within the organisations to to create something and to work harder on the issue. And that's when the interaction can can begin. So you think the the organ, the FA maybe needs to understand that the problems are there and then decide that it's going to take positive action. Do you think that's something that needs to happen? Well, they need to understand more than what they currently do. Um, you know, I think inter- one of the things I noticed from the program was when you went to the FA, they they just seemed to brush you off. You, even though you got a meeting with, was it? David Bernstein, who's really high up at the organisation, he didn't seem to have any grasp of the situation at all. Yeah, exactly. That's my point exactly. You know, his uh, 
chairman of the of the uh, chairman of the FA, and and he didn't know what their mental health initiatives were, or how long they'd been going, um, or and what work they were doing at all. And uh, I told him that I wasn't aware of any of their initiatives either. And if we weren't aware, then how on earth could we expect any of, of you know, our, our colleagues and, and peers in the wider population to know what they are? And even though, you know, he did say that I made a valid point and it should be higher up their agenda, I haven't heard anything from the FA since. No, nothing seems to have happened. Um, just to come back to something else we picked up from your book was the way you talk about money in the book and um, the way you you spent the money you were earning and um, how you dealt with the finances. Do you think that, in general, footballers think that maybe they're set up for life and were yourself surprised at how, how hard you found it to adapt to having less money when you dropped down the leagues? How difficult yes. is managing your finances? Definitely, you know, I, and there's no excuse because we're told year after year after year the PFA send their delegate liaisons in and say, look, you need to look after your money, it's not going to be like this forever, you need to do this, that and the other. And there's just something innate in, in, in a lot of footballers who are like, oh yeah, whatever, I'll be fine. You know, I'm, I'm earning this now and it's only ever going to get better and blah, 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 because this is the dream and the rubbish that's fed into them by... Um, their coaches as kids and then agents, you know, agents, and the people yeah, around them, that they're going to be the greatest. And it's not true. Um, and like many walks of life, you know, you, you live to your means. So when the guy gets a new contract, instead of staying in the same house with the same, you know, I don't know, let's say the same one, one litre car uh, and putting a bit of extra money away for when his career finishes... He buys a three-bedroom house and buys a two-litre car, you know, and then when his wages go up again, he's like, oh, I, you know, I'll get a four-bedroom house and blah, because you just live to, to your means. Yeah, of course. Generally, because you want the best for your family and you want the best for yourself and your children. But it, it's this illusion of, of um, uh, that the, the income stream is going to be there forever and they're going to be set for life when, you know, you're only one person's opinion or an injury away from the dole. And um, just finally on the on the football point, Wembley seems to have played a really important role in, in your career. Obviously, you've played a few games there and um, the highs with Burnley and maybe the lows at the end of your career with the game with Northampton. When you look back and think about playing at Wembley, how do you think the experiences have shaped yourself as a, as a person and how do you deal with the extreme highs and then the extreme lows? Um, Wembley is just an awesome place, you know. It's the home of football. When you're a kid and you see you, you watch on terrestrial TV back in the day, watching Everton against Liverpool, Liverpool coming out on top in extra time. I remember crying at that because for that year I was supporting Everton, <laughs> <laughs> and it was all going on at Wembley. You know, this is it was this was where I wanted to play football. So to then actually get there in my professional career is awesome. And, and I, I, I spoke of what it was like with Burnley and just how magnificent that was. But then conversely, coming back to Wembley with Northampton and thinking that that was going to be my career showpiece ending. You know, this was going to be me going out on a high and yeah. I, could, I could ride off into the sunset to then get absolutely battered by uh, by Bradford 
it was a horrible, horrible day. But I learnt a lot from that because it's uh, the reason that because like success and failure in football is inextricably linked with a player's self-esteem because of the way that they are assessed after the game by their colleagues and their manager and the press and the fans uh, and then that goes on 24-7 through Sky Sports News that keeps repeating everything and, and through Twitter and social media when people can tell me any time of day for for the next week or two weeks until the next game how bad I was it's um, you know sometimes it came off a game and people had tweeted in the game to me, telling me how bad what I'd just done was. <laughs> Even though I was goes, out on the pitch. Uh, so I had it goes through people's minds. When, when, when I came yeah. pitch. You know, and, and success in football and success in life are, are seen as identical. But it was coming off that game and uh, getting back to the hotel and seeing my family and being there with my family, my eldest is 14, and, and being there for her, it was almost like a little epiphany. You know, showing me that football is, uh, it, it's been amazing and it's taken me to places that I could never have dreamt of. But it doesn't define my worth and my value in life. You know, it doesn't define my worth to my family or to, to people who love and care for me. It's just my job. You know, it's just what, what I do. And, uh, and it's not anymore. Now I need to go and try and be successful in something else. Had you, had you already decided before that game that that was going to be it, or was it that match that made well, you decide that you were going to retire? Well, we ultimately yes, because what I decided with, with Mrs C was that if we if we won, I was going to retire because I, I honestly didn't think I, I could go for another year in in League One. I only just got through that year in League Two, um, but if we lost. I said I'm probably going to have these thoughts of unfinished business in my head. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think I, I really need to go back and put it right. But after the game, I, you know, I needed um, an anaesthetic in my in my uh, ankle so that I could even play the game. And I, just, I, I can't, I can't do it for another year. I've got to start thinking about my quality of life. Yeah. Um, you know, and scratching around, nicking another year at Northampton, or taking an opportunity to begin a new career in in something that I really want to do, which was broadcasting. Um, it it was, I'm not going to say it was an easy decision, but you know, it's one that I came to a bit quicker than I thought I would. So, is broadcasting your future now? You don't see yourself working in football again as maybe coaching or managing? Do you think broadcasting is where you see yourself? <laughs> Without doubt, yeah. Um, to go into coaching and management, you need to have a passion for that. There's an illusion amongst players that it's an extension of their playing career and that yeah. it's all going to be exactly the same. It's not. You know, you're moving into a 24-7 environment there where which will consume your time um, and your life. And also, you're going to have to start off with the under-sixes and sevens on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights in a, in a rainy plastic pitch, you know, getting through all that and probably get through that for five or six years before you even get a sniff at a, at a league um, appointment or maybe even a, non, a non-league appointment. So it, it's not just the, the natural crossover that people think because it's a finite industry. There are only ever 92 managers in England and then a, a certain number of coaches underneath them. So 
as more and more players drop out of the game each year, this selection pool is is increasing, you know, exponentially, yeah. and it's harder and harder to get a job. So it's not the logical progression that people think. And I haven't the passion to coach and manage to make me stick it out. And um, just finally, one of the other things you've been involved with is the the Katie Holmes Trust. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your involvement in that charity and why it's so important to you? I would, yeah. Katie was a, a young girl who, who came to be mascot for us at Preston uh, while I was there. And uh, she's just a, a year, year or two younger than my daughter. And, in, you know, a fine picture of health. Um, and then we got a, a request to go and see her at Darien House Hospice um, just two, little over two and a half months later. And she'd been diagnosed with a paediatric brain tumour and it had absolutely ravaged her, her body, you know, physically. Yeah. Um, it, it was just, it was so... So hard to see her like that, uh, um, yet this girl was still full of heart. This young girl was still smiling and really happy to see us, and her family was strong. And uh, but sadly, Katie passed away, um, and her parents—they uh, were raising money to try and take her over to Australia for a special treatment. Paula and, and David Holmes, um, but after she passed away, they—they've tried to shift that fund into adjusting paediatric brain tumour research. And so, you know, with the, with that experience that I had with them and, and seeing how hard they're working to to enable other families to not suffer like they did when Katie was ill and, and to hopefully make some changes in the way that brain tumour research is, uh, is funded, I'm, I'm doing everything that I possibly can to help them. And if any listeners out there want to find out more about the Katie Holmes Trust and, and what they can do to help as well, the website is katieholmstrust.co.uk. Um, we would obviously encourage you to do as much as you can there. And just finally, Carl, it's your birthday tomorrow, isn't it? So It is, yes. Happy birthday for tomorrow. And Mrs. C's, got a, Mrs. C's got a surprise lined up, is that right? You've been told to keep the day clear? I have been told to keep the day free, yeah. So I think um, she's bought me some paint and paintbrushes. I've got to do the fence. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what we've got there, but uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, whether she's got. It's supposed to be like a, a music box type. It's the closest we've got to a happy birthday music. I didn't, oh. want, to sing. <laughs> I, I didn't want to do singing happy birthday because I, th- I thought that would be embarrassing for everybody. So that's, <laughs> that's the closest we've got for a happy birthday oh, thank present. Thank you very much. Just finally then, Clark Carlisle, of course, his new book, You Don't Know Me But A Footballer's Life, is available online in all good bookshops and you'll be doing a book signing at the Turf next month, is that? (laughs) I will, yes. Um, I've not got the dates. I've got in my head the 21st of November, but uh, I'm not sure if that's exactly right. Well, we'll get that checked and we'll get that on social media. Thanks a lot for your time today, Clark. It's been a pleasure, thanks. Best of luck with everything you go on. I'm sure you'll be a massive success, whatever you go into. So thanks a lot for your time. We really appreciate you joining us on today's No Name Ever podcast. No worries. I, I hope the, the Clarets don't need Wembley this season. I, I think that's uh, that's going to be the way forward, top two. It's going to be the title, mate. Absolutely nailed on. Uh, we'll be back Saturday for Ipswich 
who are the visitors, uh, will be travelling to Ipswich, sorry, for non ever live. You can follow all the action live with us, and the podcast will be back a week on Monday. Thanks a lot for listening, and thanks again to our guest, Clark Carlisle. We'll be back next week. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the No Nay Never podcast. For more, visit nonaynever.net. And don't forget, follow us on Twitter at nonaynevernet. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver-assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.